And hello, everybody. This is Homefront Rising, the U.S. Tour of Duty podcast. And we are head-to-head with the January 6th committee hearing. It is 5 o'clock in California where I am, 8 o'clock in New York where Scott is. And uh, I'm not sure, but I think this might be the first time there's been a congressional hearing in prime time in the evening. Can you ever remember them doing it in the evening? No, they may have done something during Watergate, but I, I or or when uh, uh, I ran Contra, but I, not recently. I don't remember. So this is, you know, democracy itself is at stake. That's that's how a lot of uh, people think it is. So uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how many viewers we get versus uh, how many they get. They We're might. Head head. <laughs> What's that? We're going head to head with Congress. Yeah, we are. Now they're on a whole bunch of different uh, TV channels. Uh, I think every major TV network except Fox News is covering it. So they have that advantage. But, hey, the Internet is, is everywhere, so maybe, maybe we'll do okay. So uh, well, the, beauty of, the beauty of it is this is being recorded so people can watch the hearing now and then come in and click in and watch it later. Exactly. The other significance of this date, June 9th, is that uh, today we published your latest article which is the Ritter Switcheroo Imbroglio Part 2 Big Arrow War. Here it is. And uh, we urge everybody to go to ustourofduty.org to read it. You are uh, lashing back at your your, uh, critics, including veterans, your fellow veterans. You're normally (laughs) very supportive of veterans. Uh, but I know context uh, makes all the difference. In this case, you think some of them are uh, posers of sorts. I mean, that's my word. But in essence, you can correct me if you think that's not the right term. But it, that's essentially what you're saying is they lack the experience you have. Um, and I get that. I get that. But I wonder if, uh, you know, it's it's a matter of degrees because uh, I'm thinking of like in other fields, Uh, For example, in sports, sometimes a great coach never actually played the game. Sometimes a film critic never uh, made movies, but they can do good analysis. Do you think maybe it's possible to do good analysis about the war without actually having uh, the experience that you had? Sure, absolutely, 110%. Um, But that's not what's happening here. They're not doing good analysis. What they're saying is, because I was a special operations guy in Afghanistan, because I uh, came in by helicopter and fast rope down on a village, uh, I'm, the Russians suck, and uh, they suck, and they're no good, and we can kick their ass. That's what's happening here. There's not analysis going on. This is a bunch of, um, you know, vet bros, I call them, uh, guys who like to pose with guns. Um, some of them have experience. Um, Twitter, many of them don't. Uh, many of them are wannabes. Uh, many of them are what I call uh, soft air um, you know, LARPs, live action role players. Um, and, and these are the people. Look, if, if I have no promise, I've said many, many times, uh, this this platform, this debate is supposed to be about the free exchange of ideas, debate, discussion, dialogue, and, you know, uncontroversial ideas. And the war in Ukraine is a very controversial war. Um, and it requires, I think, a, a sober analysis. But if your opening gambit is, you know, I killed Taliban. I'm God. Russia sucks. Ukraine's going to win. I'm sorry. That's just literally not a discussion point. That's uh, that's not a debate point. And if that's what you're coming at to criticize me, 
I'll say, get the hell off my space. I have no time for you. And, you know, it seems that the people who are least qualified or maybe uh, the dishonest ones, sometimes it's more an issue of honesty than it, than it is uh, ability to analyze, are the ones who are the commentators on the TV networks. Yeah. I mean, so it's really hard to get good analysis. Let's, let's go to the article here. Now, you, uh, you singled out uh, CNN. Let me start with the first one, actually. As, as the worst of all the U.S. media outlets covering the conflict in Ukraine, CNN stood out as being by far the least objective, doing little more than providing cover for Ukrainian government propaganda and U.S. intelligence misinformation. Now, I don't want to be too much of a literalist. It might be that you just happen to see some really lousy coverage. But on the other hand, I'm curious, do you, just to stay up on things, uh, watch the various networks so, so you could actually make a conclusion that maybe they are worse than, say, MSNBC or Fox News or anybody? No, I did. And uh, also, I, I need to point out that I have a lot of experience with CNN. Um, you know, they, uh, in, the, in the lead up to the uh, invasion of Iraq in October 2002, I was invited to CNN's uh, corporate headquarters where I was vetted by CNN. Uh, I, I gave a, a question and answer uh, period in front of um, about 50 of their uh, top producers and talking heads where they subjected me to intense scrutiny, intense scrutiny under the supervision of their CEO. And um, when it was done and I answered everybody's questions, I was deemed to be uh, worthy of putting on air. They literally said, Scott Ritter has passed the test uh, you producers are free to book him anytime. We encourage him to go on your shows. Da, da, da. Then they invited me back to the, to the war room, literally a war room, where they sat there and showed. This is October 2002, meaning months before we actually went to war in Iraq in uh, months before the United States uh, openly acknowledged that that, that that was what we were doing. Remember, in October, we're still saying, no, 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 we seek peace. We want to go to uh the UN, we want to get a negotiated settlement here. And instead, I'm looking at a war room where they are in active collaboration with the Pentagon, active collaboration with the Pentagon. They're already talking about embedded uh, reporters. They, they are building maps and graphics based upon input from the Pentagon. This is what they're telling me. And they wanted me to be a part of this. Um, and I did not want to be a part of that. Now you're putting up the quote because General Nakasone made it clear that that's still what's happening today. He didn't say we're releasing intelligence directly to the media. He said, we're releasing it directly to CNN, that network, for the purpose of shining a light on it, to you know, illuminate it for the public. So CNN is, is in the business of disseminating misleading intelligence, and we know it's misleading because the National Security Advisor staff said, we just leak crap to the internet or to the, the media, even though we know it's wrong because we want to shape perception. So yeah, CNN sucked. End of story. Did that, that, that's almost too ridiculous to believe. I, I'm curious, did, did he say that, like, uh, was the context of the conversation already talking about CNN, or did he make a point of saying that for some reason that's the network that they've singled out to, to be their, the, you know, how they get their information? No, he, sing, he said that's the network they singled out because I'm telling you there is a hand-glove relationship between CNN and the Pentagon that goes back as far as I know to – uh, 2002, but I'll also tell you this, in 1998, 1997, it was the CIA and the Pentagon that went to CNN 
and sent them to the United Nations inspectors to produce a special on concealment inspections. CNN was tapped by the Pentagon and the CIA to do this. Their producers were cleared to see classified U2 images. So yeah, CNN is literally an extension of the US government, literally. Well, I mean, MSNBC is owned by General Electric. They are in the war business. So uh, believe me, I'm not by any means defending they're CNN. Not, they're not there. They're not there. They're not big well, enough. They have no well, viewership. Well, Malcolm Nance is there. And uh, if we're going to criticize people, uh, let, let, let's take a look at Malcolm Nance. And uh, I'd love to get your take on him. Okay. Well, I joined the International uh, Legion here in Ukraine. And I am here to help this country fight, you know, what essentially is a war uh, of, of its of ex extermination. This is an existential war. The Russians now have to understand Ukraine's unique territory. Not going this down? Is my favorite. No. This is my favorite. But I've never seen a fast move. Yeah, this is a classic. Every 30 seconds. Are we in an air raid? Yes. Yeah, we are. We had the air raid. So there's another coming. Wait, there'll be three. There'll be three. Stand by. Every 30 seconds. One more, they're firing you memorize this. They fire them in 30 second intervals. Every 30 seconds. They fire them in every 30 Smoke. seconds. Stand by. Stand by. Three, cruise missile caliber. Stand by. Stand by. <laughs> Stand by four. 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 Let's see him. There he is. There he is. There he is. All right. Now, I'm I'm an I'm an idiot. I'm a layman. So I'm not sure. Is that as clownish as it appears to be? Or, or is it just... <laughs> it's a literal stupidity. They don't fire them every thirty seconds. Watch uh -huh. the damn video, Malcolm, before you open your mouth. Calibers being fired by the naval vessels. It's boom, five seconds later, boom, five seconds later, boom, five seconds later, boom. So, you know, he's just dumber than dirt, but he is the literal embodiment of what I call a live action role player. Man has never seen ground combat. I'll say that one more time, even though he wears the world famous combat action ribbon on his chest, he has never seen ground combat. He got that because he was on a ship off the coast of Beirut doing his little listening thing, and the ship was part of a fleet that fired 16-inch shells into there, and the Navy went, all the ships get the combat action ribbon, every sailor on board. So he has it, and ever since then, he's been running around saying, I was in combat. Okay, Malcolm, you were in combat, but you don't know a damn thing about the caliber missile, and you don't know anything about the Russians. You're a walking, talking joke. All that crap he was wearing, straight off the shelf. I mean, just total nonsense. And then so he gave a later interview, you know, he's, he's wearing all that. He's nowhere near the front. He will never be anywhere near the front. Now, he'll tell you he's in the safe house. I'm in a safe house. I do media stuff. But, you know, I'm here every night. I clean my weapon. Every night I check my gear because I might have to go do some uh, safe house stuff. Guy is a joke, a literal joke. Who the hell dresses up like a, like a G.I. Joe to give that statement? Well, as, as I said before... Sometimes it's more an issue of uh, dishonesty than it is lack of intelligence. So you say he's dumber than dirt. I don't know. Maybe the guy is, but, or, but he doesn't necessarily seem stupid to me. He seems just flagrantly dishonest. Well, you, I would call that stupid, but that's just my opinion. Right. Um, 
you know, look, the, the, the man, the man is a poser. He's right. never, you know, he, look, I don't want to get in the business. Again. How can I? So All right. know, he's, All right. he, he, he and I don't see eye to eye and you know that uh, we've tried to have a debate. He won't, he runs away from the debate. He won't debate Malcolm. I'll debate you anytime you want to. You posing soft air LARP. Um, he's a joke, literal joke. He knows nothing about Russia yet. He's written book and book, book, book after Russia about Russia. Uh, he wrote a book about stealing the election. And when you read the scenario, I forget what he called it, but he just made something up that is not how the Russians work. It is literally the opposite of how the Russians work, but he made up operation, whatever, and he describes this stuff. It's literal comedy, but he's passing it off as if uh, it's real and he knows what he's talking about. He never did any Soviet work in his life. He was a Arab cryptologist linguist, meaning he didn't break codes. He just sat there with headphones on, listened to Arabic language and transcribed it and handed it to people and said, this is what I think they're saying. All right. So the 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 issue the uh, the challenge to debate is out there again. Malcolm Nance, you heard it. Scott Ritter is challenging you to a debate. We can arm wrestle. We can box. We can do whatever you want, Malcolm. Knife fight. <laughs> all right. So you you say that um, you know, and, and compared to all these posers, that you know, good solid intelligence will win every time. Now, theoretically, that's true. But in reality, there's a problem that's that I think has gotten worse in recent months. And that is that the folks who, who want to push their agenda and ignore the truth uh, just don't cover the stuff that they don't want to get out there. So how do you win? How do you win if you're being ignored? I don't know. Um, you know, that's a good question. What, what I meant by this is <clears throat> we, we, we take a look at all the uh, positions that, that were taken at the start of this conflict. And then we look at how positions have evolved or how, you know, how situations evolved, or whatever. Um, and the, the people that are closest to, um, you know, fact-based analysis don't have to move too much. You know, you shuffle a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, go a little bit forward. You know, you make your adjustments as you have to, but because you've tried to be assiduous about deriving analysis from, a set of um, verifiable or at least, uh, you know, plausible facts, you're, you're roughly on target. You just have to move a little bit here, move a little bit there. All the other people you're seeing making giant moves, giant moves. You got the New York Times, the Washington Post suddenly going, oh, maybe Ukraine's losing. Um, no kidding, guys. They've been losing since day one. Uh, you know, that even governments are coming and going, uh, we might want to stop this thing because it's not going too well for the Ukrainians. It's never been going well for the Ukrainians, ever. They've had to make these huge maneuvers to get to the area because at some point in time, you just cannot ignore what the truth is. When the president of Ukraine comes out and says, we're losing 100 dead and 500 wounded a day, um, I think the media suddenly had to go, well, we better catch up. We better get we better realign ourselves so that our story matches what the president of Ukraine is saying. And he's underplaying the casualties. They're probably losing 300 dead and close to 800 wounded a day. It's that bad. That's a battalion a day. You figure there's three to five battalions in a brigade. So every three to four days, there goes a brigade. There's 24 brigades in the uh, in the Ukrainian army. They're dying off, man. Now they're able to reconstitute, mobilize reserves. Another thing that I was mocked on uh, early on is I said, you know, the 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 
the Russians have 200,000, Ukrainians have around you know, 600, 700, 800,000 troops. They went, that's far too many. Ukrainians don't have that. Well, the Ukrainian defense minister came out and said, we got 700,000. So, you know, guess what? Again, the guys who deal with facts only have to adjust a little bit. You're very good about putting these, these numbers into perspective, too, because I remember when we were talking about the amount of aid uh, that the U.S. is giving Ukraine. Uh, you know, people just hear a number and, you know, and, 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 and yeah, I think to a lot of people, there's not much difference between $3 million and $40 billion. Uh, but you pointed out that that's more money than, the, the, uh, than Russia spends on its entire military in a year. Yeah. And, and, and you did something similar in this article when you were talking about uh, the amount of artillery that, that's, that's going on. Can you say a few words about that? Yeah. You know, again, I started the article off by uh, putting out a quote that I, I, I had on, um, on Twitter where it basically said, if, if you haven't done, uh, you haven't worked in an FTC and done a schedule of fires uh, that involve, uh, you know, three battalions or more, um, I don't want to hear your opinion on Ukraine. Why did I say that? Because Ukraine was going to be an artillery war. I knew that from the start. That, that, that comment was made before the war started. Anybody who studied Russia, who studied the Russian way of war, knew that this was going to be an artillery war. It's all about artillery. Everything else supports artillery. Um, and so, uh, you know, javelin missiles were nice. Uh, In-laws were nice. Stingers were nice. They weren't going to do anything. I mean, the Russians adjusted. The javelins were old, whatever. Um, artillery tends to flatten the infantry that holds the javelin, uh, flatten the infantry that holds the stingers. Um, the only way the Ukrainians could competently fight back is through an artillery duel with artillery pieces of their own. And um, they tried and, you know, they, they started this war with, you know, uh, several thousand artillery pieces. <laughs> That's a lot, by the way. Uh, the U.S. Army doesn't have that many, not nearly that many. Um, and, uh, you know, many of them were destroyed. And now they've been replaced with this assistance. 300 plus artillery tubes advanced artillery tubes. 118 of them are the M777, um, you know, towed 155 millimeter howitzer. 12 of them are the, the French Caesar uh, self-propelled howitzer. Many of them, 60 plus, are M109 Paladin self-propelled howitzers, on and on and on. Uh, 300, that's 20 battalions worth of artillery. Just to put this in perspective, the United States Marine Corps has 11 battalions of artillery for the whole Marine Corps. So, and this isn't 20 battalions for, you know, constituting the whole Ukrainian military. This is 20 battalions, new battalions, fresh battalions with brand new state-of-the-art artillery coming in, joining the battle. Some of it's interdicted when it comes in. Some of it's destroyed while it waits. But most of it's making it to the battlefield. Most of it's being employed. Uh, rounds are going downrange. And some of these rounds are GPS uh, rounds. For instance, the Excalibur round fired by the uh, M777. Um, GPS means it's given it, it hits a specific spot on the ground um and this becomes even more important uh when you get real-time intelligence from the united states it says hey right now as we speak <laughs> five seconds ago uh there's a russian battalion command post right here at these coordinates and they plug in those coordinates they go to the round they fire the round and less than a minute later boom that battalion command post disappears dozens of dead this is happening every day to the Russians. They're being killed by this artillery. Now, that doesn't mean that Ukraine's winning the war. They're not. Russia's winning the war because they do artillery bigger and better. 
But the Ukrainians are exacting a heavy price from the Russians. This well, is what it's, we it's, a lot of, it's a lot of artillery. And also you point out that it's, it's an extensive period of time that the Ukrainian troops are being trained. Well, that was the other thing. Well, Some well, people, so let me, well, let me ask you a question, because I think this is on the minds of a lot of people. Considering how much money the U.S. is providing and how much help NATO is given in terms of training as well as the money, are we not at war right now with Russia? I mean, how, how does Russia look at look at this? I mean, what's the difference between what's going on right now and, and actually being at war with Russia? Russia has two parameters, I guess. Um, look, first of all, they're, they're, they're the only adults in the room. We know this because we've seen what happens in the United States when, uh, when other nations dare intervene in conflicts that we're involved in. Uh, you remember Qasem Soleimani, the uh, Iranian general? Uh, he ran this organization called the Quds Force. And the Quds Force, um, during the, uh, during the uh, American occupation of, uh, of Iraq, uh, the Quds Force was um, supplying weapons and training to Iraqi insurgents in the south, Shia insurgents working for the Ma, uh, uh, for for um, Al Sadr, and um, over the course of several years, through their insurgency, they killed five to six hundred American soldiers. And oh my God, you've never seen such hue and cry in the United States. Now look, I, my heart goes out. I don't want anybody to die. I don't want any American soldiers to die. And five to six hundred is a whole bunch, but you are occupying a goddamn country. Okay, you weren't there playing tiddlywinks. You weren't there delivering humanitarian goods. You invaded and occupied a sovereign country and the citizens of a sovereign state said, hell no, get out of here. And the Iranians helped them. Now, you have every right to hunt down and kill these people. You're at war. And we did. No one's talking about the number of Iraqis we killed. No one's talking the fact that we mobilized Joint Special Operations Command and turned them loose against the Iranians and killed a bunch of them as well. All we talk about is the five to six hundred Americans that died, and we were so angry about this that we assassinated him later, calling him a criminal because he had the audacity to kill Americans. Well, guess what, America? I could probably sit down and name a whole bunch of generals that are doing much worse than Qasem Soleimani did, doing much worse to the Russians. They're killing hundreds, if not thousands of Russians, and if you don't think that pisses the Russians off, you don't know Russia. But the Russians are big boys. They understand that this is the nature of the beast. And, um, you know, they've calibrated uh, accordingly. What Russia won't tolerate is the introduction of uh, weapon systems that uh, will radically transform the nature of the battlefield. To give you an example, I think Russia has said that if um, we provide um, um, the, the, the Attackums missile, the 300-kilometer the, the range uh, missile that as part of the HIMARS system that we're getting ready to send to Ukraine, that this would be a game changer and that they would reach out and uh, hit the decision-making centers outside of Ukraine that are involved in this, and they would hit the bases where these weapons come in, which means if they're landing at Ramstein Air Base in Germany, that base is going to disappear, and Brussels, the NATO headquarters, will disappear. Um, so that's sort of a Russian red line. The other one is if, um, if weapons are used to attack Russian territory. Uh, this is a special military operation, and people can roll their eyes and chuckle about it. But what it means is that Ukraine is a criminal state. They have Nazis. The Nazis are in control, and Russia says goodbye to the Nazis, and that's what's going on. Russia will allow the criminals to fight in their home turf, but Russia will not allow the criminals to reach across the border and touch Russia. You only get to do that if you're at war. And Russia's not at war with Ukraine. Russia's involved in a special military operation. 
that's not just semantics, it's legal, it's the whole way they're doing business, et cetera. So this is another one where Russia will, will draw a red line and come out and slap the United States down. But um, other than that, Russia has big boy pants. And they're saying that's the nature of the beast. You know, Russia supply. You said, previously, you said previously that Russia is going to have to adjust to circumstances. And that might mean coming up with some sort of different authority. Your point was that they are actually honoring the authority. They haven't limiting what they do to what they have been authorized to do. But it, if I if I understood you, I think you were saying that, that it seems necessary for them to do more than what the what they originally have the authority to do. Well, what I'm saying is that um, let's just talk facts here. There is a pain threshold for everybody, whether you're a stoic Russian or an emotional American. You have a pain threshold, and uh, you know you 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 will carry out activities until that pain threshold has been met. And when that pain threshold is met, you either have to stop or you have to change the nature of what you're doing to adjust the, the, you know, the scope. So that pain threshold is expanded so you can continue. Um, and as long as Ukraine is receiving virtually unlimited uh, weapon supplies um, and they have strategic depth in the form of training facilities in France and Germany and Poland where they can train these guys with no consequence and then deploy them to the front line where they can be used in a manner that kills Russians. Um, you know, I don't know what Russia's pain threshold is, but um, I imagine that they're getting close. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's not unreasonable to think that Russia is you know coming close to the saturation point where um, it stops being a special military operation and it needs to transition into a war. Um, and that's political pro politically problematic for the Russians because right now Putin has a lot of support, a lot of support from Russians. And they've Russians have said, you know, we we we'll take the we'll take the hits, man. We'll take the casualties, but you've got to finish this job. Um, but at some point in time, Putin might have to turn this into a war, which means general mobilization, which means transformation of the economy and the pain factor uh, shifts. And that's politically risky for Putin. So my, my point is the longer this war goes on, the more danger we are or Russia is of having its pain threshold met or exceeded. Um, and then it has to make some uh, difficult choices. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, there was an interesting phrase that came out uh, just yesterday from, uh, from Sergei Lavrov, foreign minister. Uh, he was asked about what are Russia's objectives? And prior to this, he and everybody else have said, Russia will accomplish the objectives they set. Denazification, demilitarization, permanent neutrality. End of story. No no, no negotiation on the territory. We own it forever. Yesterday, he said something different. He said, Russia is seeking denazification of Eastern Ukraine. It's the first time a caveat has been placed on that, which tells me that Russia's in the process of altering its objectives because it's reaching its pain threshold. And that in order for Russia to declare victory, they might have to scale down the military um, objectives in, in terms of the scope. Uh, and, and that's a huge change. Uh, the denazification of Eastern Ukraine is far different than the denazification of all of Ukraine. Um, you it, seem to really take it at face value when when uh, Putin or spokespeople in the Russian military state what their objectives are. Uh, 
They've never lied. They've never lied. They've never lied. And I'll say that one more time. They have never lied. Unlike Michael McFaul, who sat there and openly admitted that he lies all the time. American diplomacy is nothing but a lie. The National Security Council says they release lies to CNN so the American people can be lied to. Yeah, the Russians. You know why I trust them? Because they've earned that trust. They've earned it. They don't lie. What they say, the word is their bond. Don't call me naive because I've been dealing with them my entire life. And they have never once looked me in the eyes and lied. All right. So let's give the audience a chance in a couple of minutes. But I just wanted to briefly touch on a couple of more things in the article. Larry (laughs) Johnson, who I thought was kind of an ally of yours. I'm thinking back to the Iraq war days. And I thought there's some mutual respect between the two of you. Oh, I, 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 I don't disrespect Larry Johnson. Okay. I so just disagree here, with him. Yeah. All right. So here he says that he's shocked that you got this wrong. Larry states that the U.S. and NATO are not sending the most advanced, most sophisticated equipment to Ukraine. But you say otherwise. Yeah, the M777A2 howitzer is the most advanced, most sophisticated howitzer in the American arsenal. Sorry, Larry, you're wrong. End of story, end of debate, end of discussion. Your point is flawed across the board. And, and he said other things, too. He talks about, you know, that, that, that you know, it, it can't move because it's code. Well, it takes three minutes to emplace it, but that doesn't matter because the enemy may not be seeing you. you in a minute, it can fire four rounds, uh, and then it can displace two to three minutes later. That's pretty damn fast. Pretty damn fast. So the idea that it's just sitting there waiting to get blown up, you know who says things like that? People who have never been in the artillery. People who don't know the artillery. People who don't understand the artillery. Larry was a good analyst for the State Department, good analyst for the CIA. What he did, counterterrorism. He knows nothing about artillery. Nothing. He may have read some things. Whatever he read was wrong. Um, and well, so would you like Larry, to challenge to him to debate also? Would he be welcome to come on? Would you think that would be interesting? You know, uh, if, if, if we could do it in a way that didn't damage our friendship, yeah. Um, maybe we both have to take a deep breath and, uh, and wait a little while. Uh, because, to be honest, I'm a little pissed off. Um, mm-hmm. Because if, if Larry knows my resume as he should, he'd know that I spent a lot of time in a general support artillery battalion perfecting the very tactics necessary to take Soviet artillery system on in combat and prevail. <clears throat> Everything he talks about, I've done. I wrote the book because I helped Marine Corps transition away from old static World War II artillery battles to new nimble battles. I came up with unique techniques for using counter-battery radar uh, so that we could take out their artillery with our counter-battery fires without putting ourselves at undue risk. Um, I did this for a living. They paid me to do this. I loved it. Um, so, yeah, Larry, I know artillery. You don't. That's as, as simple as I can make it. All right. Let's uh, give the audience a chance to uh, join the discussion. Uh, let me uh, see what's happening. with the. I'm, I'm working by myself, so I'll ask the audience just to bear with me for a moment. It'll take about 30 seconds to get the phone lines going. And also, I see we have some comments coming in on uh, YouTube and maybe Facebook as well. So well, let's take a break for about 30 seconds and then we'll return.
I lied. I need 30 seconds more. Hang in there, folks. <laughs> Okay, I think I got it now. And we have some comments also. Let's take a look at the comments uh, coming in. Like I said, I'm by myself, so I have to kind of read these on the fly. Uh, let's see here. Greetings from Sweden, not in NATO yet. Thank you, Turks and Erdogan, for saving us from ourselves in the US war machine. Adore Scott Ritter. Good vibes. Thank you. <laughs> What's that blue thing behind you? There's a very bright blue thing over your shoulder. That there? Yeah. That was the background for that there, which is my Bob Dylan poster. Oh, so. Bob. So we're learning all kinds of things about you. You're a Bob Dylan fan? Huge. But he came here to Albany a couple years ago, and I, got, I had the honor and privilege of seeing him live in concert. All right. I heard someone say it was higher than Vietnam at the peak. What? Higher. What is higher? I don't know what they're referring to. The casualty rate? Yes. Vietnam, uh, we were losing maybe 50 guys a day. Uh, at, at the peak, we were, uh, were taking in 250, 300 dead a week. Um, the casualty rate in, uh, for the Ukrainians is uh, well above that. Yeah, there's the clarification there. That is what the question oh, was. Yeah. Good guess. Could NATO use its own forces to capture Odessa and ensure the survivability of Ukraine as a state? How long would it take NATO to gather such an army? French ambassador to the UN was suggesting this. Uh, well, the French ambassador, I need to call him up. I've never done drugs in my life, but I'm ready to do it now because he's smoking some good stuff. Um, first of all, a NATO army couldn't do that under its current uh, authorizations. Um, NATO is a, is a, is a consensus-driven organization. Um, Article 5 of the Charter is, um, you know, attack against one is attack against all. Uh, any Article 4 authorization for force, which is what they're talking here, will require unanimous consent, and I can name a half a dozen NATO members who would be against this. So this wouldn't be a NATO army. It would be a um, conglomeration of troops from NATO members who are operating with a non-NATO status, similar to what Turkey's doing when it goes into Syria. NATO member, NATO forces, but when they move into Syria, they don't have NATO um, cachet. They don't get NATO protection. Um, there's no army in Europe to do this right now, none. Uh, they could mobilize for years and never be ready to do this. Uh, uh, let's, let's remember Brunel, the uh, foreign, foreign policy guru of the European Union, has said Europe's not ready to fight a war against Russia. They're not because their army sucks. Their armies have atrophied. 
Uh, they're incapable of this kind of offensive military operation. And to move into Odessa would put them toe-to-toe with um, the most combat-seasoned military in the world today, and that's the Russians, with the finest combat uh, battalion commanders, uh, brigade commanders. Uh, they would be slaughtered. They would be annihilated. It would not even be close. So the French ambassador is a fool. Sorry, Mr. French ambassador, but you're a fool. Well, the commenter called uh, him asinine, so I guess you're on the same Well, page. I guess I'm doing better. <laughs> <laughs> There are nationalists in Russia whom will have nothing to do with any of this. A lot of patriots. Patriotism comes in different forms. Um, many people who are opposed to the American invasion of uh, Iraq consider themselves uh, patriots. Uh, many people who are supported the war in Iraq consider themselves patriots. Um, it's love of country that makes you a patriot. And um, you're allowed to disagree about the policies of your country. And I will never denigrate uh, somebody is unpatriotic uh, if they're Russian and they're opposed to this conflict. They have every right to be opposed to this conflict. There's many aspects of this conflict that are worthy of opposition. Same uh, same way, I'm not going to attack any uh, Russian who says they're supporting this conflict uh, because there's a lot about this war that, that is worthy of support. Uh, ultimately, patriotism is defined by the individual. Okay, and here's another comment. Odessa is an extremely pretty city. Is it possible for Russia to take it without it being destroyed? I'm sure the Russians recognize exactly what you're saying because it was a city that had a uh, very high population of ethnic Russians. It's a historic city. Um, it's known for its architecture. Um, and I can pretty much guarantee that Russia would approach any combat in the city of the city um, with great care, and we see this. We see this right now in in, in Donetsk. There's a um, there's an area near the city of um, Severodonetsk, um, and I can't, I don't have the name right off the top of my head, but it's a it's a monastery. It's an area. It's a protected area, monastery area. Um, great architectural beauty, and the Russians have gone out of their way to avoid conflict there. They've made it basically a neutral zone deliberately, uh, and so have the Ukrainians for the most part. There was a nationalist unit that burned down. Uh, one of these uh, wooden structures and destroyed it. Uh, shame on them. But by and large, this wonderful, beautiful Orthodox church area is, um, is, is has been protected and the Russians have gone out of the way to protect it. And I feel that Russia would do the same with Odessa. Um, you know, Odessa might be a battle that's fought by isolating Odessa um, and basically compelling them to surrender through siege as opposed to taking it uh, through street-to-street fighting. I don't know. Again, only the Russians can make these decisions. But I, I do share the uh, the person's uh, point of view that Odessa is a beautiful city with extreme historic value, and it would be a damn shame if it were subjected to the kind of fighting that we saw in Mariupol. Okay. So uh, next week, we're going to be talking about your new book. Uh, maybe we can give folks a little bit of a preview now, what, what the title of it is and uh, what it's all about. Well, the book is called Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, um, and, and basically it's a half history, half memoir. Um, it's a history of um, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces inspection from its inception uh, through the first three years of its, uh, or two, two and a half years of its um, implementation. These are the years that I was involved. And it specifically focuses on uh, the portal monitoring inspections that were done in, in Vodkinsk, a uh, a, a, a city about uh, 750 miles east of Russia in the foothills of Ural Mountains. A closed city, 
no foreigners had been in that city uh, since the, the Russian Revolution. And um, and so it was, you know, it, it was a it was a cultural clash. I mean, we, we showed up in a place that had never had Americans before. And many of the Americans that were there had never been in the, in the Soviet Union before. And yet we had to work with these people, uh, to collaborate to put to put to, to struck from ground zero this uh, very uh, high-tech uh, inspection uh, facility. Um, we lived outside the gates of the uh, factory, um, and we were there during uh, during the time of perestroika. When I arrived in uh, the Soviet Union in June of 1988, uh, it coincided with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, convening of the 19th All-Party Union Conference, uh, which was a historic gathering um, for at, at which time Gorbachev was trying to use the vehicle of perestroika to transform Soviet society, to redefine Soviet government away from communist party dominated, you know, he was the general secretary at the time, uh, to a presidency, a federal system, a presidency with prime ministers and, uh, and, 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 you know, the equivalent of uh, our House of Representatives, equivalent of the, uh, the Senate and the struggles that the Soviet Union had. So, our, our attempt to put these, you know, successfully implement this treaty coincided with the struggles of perestroika and the two were intertwined. And so this is a, a story about arms control, a story about perestroika. And it's a story about human beings, Russian and American alike, who uh, had to learn to work with each other um, during times of um, great tension uh, to get a job done that was uh, critical to the security of the world, to eliminate um, classes of nuclear armed ballistic missiles that uh, threaten peace and security. Um, I, I just think it's, uh, it, it's a very important work. It's not just a personal work, it's deeply personal to me. But I think when you read the book, you'll realize that uh, there's a lot of parallels between what was going on then and what's right. happening today. And there's a lot of people that are saying, well, we don't see how there's any hope for US-Russian relations today. And I would say, read that book and you'll see that there's always hope. Where there's a will, there's a way. Things were actually as difficult or worse in, in, in the 1980s leading up to the signing of the treaty. Um, we almost went to nuclear war with Russia several times, and yet we managed to find a way to sit down, work with another to get this treaty in place. And I can guarantee you that if we had leaders of the caliber of Reagan and Gorbachev, and we do have one in Vladimir Putin, he is a leader of that caliber. If America can find a leader of a similar caliber, willing to sit down and work with the Russians in a collaborative fashion, arms control once again could be the basis for a fundamental change in direction. And let's understand this. When the treaty started, Ronald Reagan still considered the Soviet Union the evil empire. In June of 1988, he was back in, uh, in, in uh, the Soviet Union in Moscow, and he was asked that question by a, 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 a Soviet uh, university, do you still view us as the evil empire? And he said, no, I've learned to view you as friends. That's an amazing transformation. Right. I believe it could happen again. It could, and, ho and hopefully uh, it will. You have a knack for writing books that turn out to be uh, very relevant when it would seem that at the time you start writing the books, it's not so obvious, but it just, just turns out that way. Maybe you're good at reading the tea leaves, or maybe uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I, I don't know which it is, but I don't know. This this book was timed actually uh, for the uh, anniversary of uh, signing of the INF Treaty. My goal was to get the book out on the 35th anniversary of the signing of the INF Treaty, which means December 8th of uh, of this year. Um, 
it just so happened that um, as I was writing this book and I was uh, bringing this book to closure, uh, the Ukraine thing um, blew up in our face. And with it uh, came, you know, people started talking about the potential of nuclear conflict. And um, I realized almost immediately, I said, you know, the most relevant book out there right now isn't a book that discusses Russian-Ukrainian relations today. It's a book that discusses, it's literally a roadmap of, to peace. It's a roadmap to peace. And I, I, I said, this book's got to come out now. And it's got to, you know, hopefully people will read it. And hopefully it will... Um, it will resonate not just here in the United States, but in Russia as well. Now, you're going to write an article uh, about the book also to coincide with our talk next week. Is that, is that the plan? Well, I, th I think the, the model that we're using for these discussions is, is for me to write uh, something that introduces the topic uh, that can be read by an audience prior to us discussing it. So um, or other than people going out and ordering the book today, which... I would never object to. <laughs> um, then uh, you know, it, you if you if you want to hear about the book before you go and, and buy it, um, I will write an article that tries to put the book into perspective. I'll, you know, I, I tried to get the publisher. I, I, I submitted um, eighty photographs of uh, you know, it's a unique time in history, and some of these photographs are, are pretty spectacular. Um, we ended up having to winnow it down to under thirty, uh, which is still good. But the, you know, so the book's got about thirty unique photographs. But uh, I'll try and put some of the 50 that were called out into this article. So it, it, as, as, you, as I discuss things, um, you can help visualize. You can, you can do the all fact right. that well, that's, what, that's what Scott Ritter after is all about. We're offering people some content that isn't available elsewhere. And uh, I would like folks to consider donating to us. It's only $5 per month, and there's going to be some content that is accessible only uh, to paid members. So please, uh, if you want to support our work, you can go to USTourOfDuty.org, and we certainly appreciate it. And it's in a good cause. You're supporting veterans. Indeed. Uh, so you can uh, explore the website when you're there. We have, just, so, uh, just so people know, this is the only, what we're doing here, you and I, is the only um, effort I've ever made to monetize um, my appearance. Um, and and it's, I'm only doing it, A, because I like you. <laughs> and you and I have, have a long history of working with each other, so I'm comfortable with you. And uh, two, I, I think the cause is uh, is a good cause. I mean, it's 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 helping veterans who need help. Um, so, you know, I I, 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 I don't. I'm, I'm horrible. I'm one of the reasons I'm glad you're here is that um, you can do the pitching. I, I don't do ten cup operations very well. I don't ask for donations. I don't do. That. But you know, if if people are you know, if you're in the business of uh, subscribing to YouTube channels that you like and, and things of that nature, you can't go wrong subscribing to this one. One, we're going to give you free content uh, anyways. But uh, two, um, you know, at some point in time, I think we might, you know, provide subscriber only content. Um, but three, no matter what, um, it's in a good cause. This is supporting veterans. It's a cause I believe in, cause Jeff believes in. And um, I'm hopeful that people who... Um, who, who do this sort of thing, do it. But on the other hand, if you don't, welcome anyways. We're here for you, too. <laughs> well, for a guy who doesn't do a good pitches, uh, you just did a great pitch. And uh, I'll just add to that, you know, Scott mentioned we've known each other for years, and he's always been very generous. Uh, he's far and away the number one speaker in this realm. 
and he packs the room wherever he goes. He, oh, I mean, you've seen his interviews. Every interview Scott does is a killer interview, and it's the same way in person uh, when he does a talk, which he just did this weekend in Houston. So before we say goodbye, you want to say a few words? I understand there were several hundred people in the room in Houston on Saturday. How did that go? Well, I spoke at the Ron Paul, uh, or at least a, an, uh, an event that was sponsored by the Ron Paul um, uh, Institute. Or, um, Ron Paul was there, great man, um, libertarian. Um, I don't, he, he and I have, have said we, we don't necessarily agree with everything each one of us stands for, but we respect the hell out of each other for, for what we, for, for standing up for what we believe in. And, uh, I think Ron Paul is a great American. He believes in freedom of speech, et cetera. Um, we, the, the, the theme was, um, you know, Joe Biden's, uh, you know, policies, uh, foreign policy, et cetera. And I was asked to address, um, the issue of, um, Ukraine and, and China. So I, uh, I, I gave a 30-minute presentation. I think it went over fairly well. There were other speakers who were equally talented. They, they, it was just a very informative day, um, and I got to meet a lot of very nice, interesting people. And um, you know, it, it, it's the kind of uh, it's the kind of trip I really enjoy. Um, short, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but productive. Um, well received on, on on all parts. I was well received, and I received them very well. It was. Uh, it was just a very pleasant, uh, and I want to thank Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for, uh, for making it happen. I want to thank, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Paul himself and, and everybody else who was involved. If anybody was there is listening, thank you. You guys were great. All right. Well, we hope to be able to organize some more events. And if anybody has any suggestions about uh, where you would like to see Scott speak, feel free to send us an email and we'll do our best to make it happen. Next week, we'll be talking about Scott's new book, and uh, I'm sure we can also get into the latest developments in the Ukraine-Russia conflict as well. US Tour of Duty.org is the website. Thank you all for tuning in. See you next week. Mm-hmm.